Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Do you remember the end of the original Jurassic Park movie, like the 1993 one? The humans remaining on the island. I'm not seeing a lot of people. Who saw the movie? Okay, yeah, yeah give me some. Okay. Uh, the, the humans remaining on the island, they're trapped in the welcome center. Remember this? They're surrounded by raptors, and there's no way out. This is the end, right? Until, and this is a spoiler, <laughs> but you've had 30 years to watch it. So I kind of think it means it's on you at this point. What happens? The T-Rex, right? busts into the welcome center and goes after the raptors. Now in that moment, when the humans are being rescued from the danger of a pack of raptors, do they throw their arms around each other with peaceful smiles and take it all in? Do they go up to the T-Rex and snuggle up and say, thanks for saving our lives, big buddy. T-Rex might have saved them, but you better believe they were jumping into a Jeep and getting out of there as fast as they possibly could. That's because simultaneously at that moment, they're feeling A, relief, because the imminent danger is averted, but also ongoing terror, right? Because in some ways, the presence of T-Rex is even scarier than what they had been facing before. Believe it or not, there are some parallels between that scene in our scripture text this morning, the disciples, those are Jesus' 12 close friends and followers, they end up in a scary situation, in grave danger. In the midst of that, the way Jesus shows up will bring both relief and fear, both of which are appropriate when you start to realize who Jesus is. So would you turn with me to John chapter 6, if you haven't already? In John 6, week after week, we're working through our fall sermon series entitled The One and Only Son. You're going to want to have a Bible open follow along in this. In the series, we're looking at these signs, as John calls them, uh, and we're looking at these particular statements made by Jesus, both of which reveal to us, the readers, aspects of who Jesus really is. So now that we're in chapter 6 of John's gospel, this is a section in which Jesus is being clearer than he's ever been up to this point about disclosing who he is and why he's come. And as he does so, he's met with mixed responses. Some love him, some hate him. And some of those who love him, love him for the wrong reasons. Some of those who hate him, hate him for the wrong reasons. In other words, among both those who love him and those who hate him, there's a significant amount of missing the point of who Jesus really is. When we pick up the story, Jesus has just miraculously fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, then escaped the crowds who want to forcibly make him king. Dr. Lau preached on last week, and he escapes by withdrawing to a lonely mountain to pray on his own. Jesus' disciples then go ahead of him. It's late, and they need to get back to their home base in Capernaum. So follow along with me as I read this now, and let's actually, if you don't mind, let's stand in reverence for God's word if you're able. This is John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. <clears throat> When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea 
began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. As we join the disciples in this passage, we first learn the nature of the chaos. Then we meet the master over the chaos, and then we witness the rescue from the chaos. Nature of the chaos, master over the chaos, rescue from the chaos. We'll take those in turn. First, the nature of the chaos in verses 16 to 18. Take a look again. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. A handful of ancient cultures were seafaring peoples. They made their living at sea, comfortable on the water. The Jewish people, on the other hand, were one of the majority of ancient people groups whose view of the sea was not favorable. And let me just say before we get into it, as somebody who can't really do much more than doggy paddle and who is completely out of breath after a lap or two in the pool, I think water is scary. I don't know how many of you are with me. We are land creatures, right? If something's coming at me on land, I can see it. So I can fight back or run away, right? If something's coming at me on the lake, it's a different deal. When a storm comes up out of nowhere on land, no problem, right? I just run for shelter. A couple times in a lifetime, a tornado might pass a few miles from your house. Other than that, we're good, right? But when a storm comes up, we're on the sea. Uh, anybody seen Deadliest Catch, right? There's, that's, it's an aptly named show, right? And think about the portrayal of the sea in the Bible from Genesis 1 onward, right? Just a quick review. In the beginning... The sea is this chaos that God's spirit hovers over in Genesis 1 and tames. In the days of Noah, God uses the sea to drown the whole earth to start over with one family. During the Exodus, God uses the sea to destroy the pursuing Egyptian army when it seemed like it was about to destroy the people of Israel. We could talk Jonah. We could talk about the demon-possessed herd of pigs that rushes down into the lake. In the Bible, the sea consistently equals danger. The sea consistently equals darkness. The sea consistently equals death. In the last chapter of the Bible, I saw the new heavens and the new earth, and there was no sea. Right? The sea consistently equals chaos in Scripture. That's probably the best word for it. And here the disciples find themselves on the sea. And it's after dark. And a storm is brewing. And sure, some of these guys are fishermen by trade, but if anything, their experience as fishermen has almost certainly given them more respect, more appreciation for the untamable nature of the chaotic sea. Everybody on this boat is fearing for their lives, right? But being on the middle of the lake, a few miles from shore, is not actually the worst part of this situation. It being dark is not the worst part of the situation. It being a storm on the sea, not the worst part of the situation they're facing. What's the worst part of the situation? Verse 17. Jesus wasn't with them. Jesus wasn't with them. At this point, they've at least begun to realize that if you're going to face difficulty, you want to face it with Jesus. But 
They find they're on their own. Now, here's my question when I read this. Maybe you wonder this too. Presumably, Jesus could have met them sooner than this, right? Like before they got out three or four miles, before the storm hit. He could have gotten them before they got scared to spare them some terror. So why doesn't he? We know he's about to save them, but why does Jesus let them get scared in the first place? And I know some here are asking some version of that same question right now as you're facing your own swirling chaos. You know Jesus can rescue you. You may even be confident that he will rescue you. But right now in this moment, even as you're crying out to him for help at this season in your life, you can't help but wonder, but, but, but Jesus, why are you letting me go through this in the first place? And here's the thing. We don't always get the answer to that question. Not this side of heaven, not in propositional form. Here's why. But what we do get are promises in Scripture that he does not delight in our desperation, but that he only allows us to go through what we ourselves would agree is best for us if we knew everything he knows. We get an intimate encounter with him that we maybe otherwise wouldn't have gotten apart from our desperation, at least not in the same way. So as we imagine this night of chaos for the disciples, trying desperately to get back home to Capernaum, but separated from Jesus and in danger of death, I wonder, where's the connection point for you this morning? What night of chaos do you find yourself in right now, in other words? What winds have started to blow and unsettle the sea around you? Is it job chaos, family chaos, financial chaos, a chaos of depression or doubt? Whatever the nature of your chaos, God, he had a purpose for placing you right where you are this morning to hear this scripture today. And it wasn't just so that you could leave here intellectually informed about how Jesus met with others in their chaos 2,000 years ago. No, he wants to enter into yours with you today. I really believe that. And so in a moment, I'd like us to pause for just a few seconds of silence, privately naming our chaos and lifting it up to the Lord. But one quick note first, maybe for, maybe for the person who's here this morning or listening online who doesn't feel that he or she has any chaos at the moment. You can't identify, you can't answer this question right now. Maybe you feel like you've never had any. Maybe you're the person who sees the chaos that others are experiencing And you say, well, if they were better parents, they wouldn't be going through all that with their kids. Or you say, well, if they managed their money better, they wouldn't be struggling so much to make ends meet. In other words, you've come to believe that you don't have chaos because you're living life the right way. I want to make sure, if that's you here this morning, I just want to make sure that you hear, before you leave here, that... Chaos is coming upon your life too. None of us escapes this world without facing it. No matter how skillfully we live, the waters will one day swirl and threaten to swallow us up. They just will. And when it comes for you, remember this. Remember this. Remember this passage today. So what's your chaos? Let's silently now name the chaos in our heart before the Lord before we move on. I'll, I'll break the silence after a minute or so of unspoken prayer. 
stretching out our hands and lifting this up to the Lord. stretch that out before you and lay it before you this morning. So, uh, next, we've seen the nature of the chaos, now the master over the chaos. Master over the chaos, verse 19, take a look at it again. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. So, to the disciples, the sea is a cauldron of death, to Jesus, it might as well be a paved sidewalk. Not only is he not worried about the stormy waters, not only is he not threatened by them, he's calmly walking on them. And note, I think John tells us the distance from shore, three or four miles, so that we know that this isn't some sort of optical illusion where Jesus may be just standing on a sandbar, making it look like he's on the water. John notes that they've gone three or four miles because the shortest straight line path to Capernaum is about seven miles. They're not close to shore. They're pretty close to the middle of the lake, right? Jesus is walking in the middle of the chaotic sea. How can this be? And the only answer is that Jesus must be master over the chaos. Like a creation, when God spoke to the chaotic, watery deeps and with his words brought order forth from it, Jesus is the personification of that speech act of God, which is what John means in chapter 1 of his gospel when he says that Jesus is the word become flesh. And so, of course, he's over the chaos. When chaos comes into contact with Jesus, Jesus doesn't succumb to chaos. The chaos yields to his order. And we reflect on that component of it. It starts to come into focus then that this story in John 6, it isn't Jesus just picking a random way to show off that he's powerful. As if that maybe he was like, hey, earlier today I did that food thing. People really seem to like that. What's the next thing I could do? Ooh, if I walked on the water, they'd be talking about that all over Galilee. Right? That's, that's not what it is. No, there, there are layers and layers of meaning wrapped up in the specifics of this sign. Right? For one thing, it's a visible demonstration that Jesus is sovereign over everything in creation. He's fully in control, even over the most chaotic aspects. It almost starts to make you ask, who is this man anyway? To be in the presence of somebody like this can be a bit frightening. Did you catch it in verse 19? That's exactly what the disciples are. They're afraid. Surely they were already scared about the storm and the dark and the sea, but when they get really scared is when? When they see Jesus walking on the water. That's when they get really scared. Like we were about to be fed to T-Raptors, now a T-Rex is on the scene. Or in the spirit of Halloween and drawing from other gospel accounts of this event, we're about to drown, now we're being chased by a ghost. It's terrifying to be in the presence of a being with these sorts of powers. 
a being who is this calm and this unaffected in the face of deadly danger. A being like this is other. He's categorically different from us. And as such, we can sense that it won't do to regard him casually. Before we go to the resolution of this story, it's worth a moment's reflection, I think. Isn't, isn't it good news, though? Despite how fearful it may be, isn't it good news that Jesus is unintimidated by our chaos? Like, think about it. Whatever it is, whatever you just lifted up to the Lord a moment ago, divorce, despair, addiction, it's not too big for him. It's not too powerful for him. No matter how much you may be freaking out about it, there he is, walking on the surface of it, totally in control. That means that when you and I pray for help, we aren't praying to this empathetic buddy in the sky who has the best of intentions but who is just as overwhelmed by it all as we are. That's not who we're praying to. We're praying instead to one who stands over it all. He cares about us so much that he's resolutely walking toward us in the midst of our chaos, yet he himself is fundamentally undeterred and unchallenged by our chaos, which is what allows his presence to be comforting. Okay, and if you'll bear with me here for one more side note. Some of you may have noticed we don't have an account here in John 6 of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water to Jesus. Though we do see Peter joining Jesus on the water in Matthew's and Mark's accounts of this event. So why does John leave it out? First of all, I would have loved to hear the conversation that Peter and John had when John finished up his gospel and showed it to Peter. Uh, for a few reasons, right? You ever think about this? John's like, hey, Peter, check it out. I shouted you out in my gospel account. And Peter's like, oh, did you tell everybody how Jesus said I was the rock? John's like, no, I left that part out. Uh, well, did you say I was the one who walked on water to Jesus? You left that part out too? What did you say about me? And John's like, I told the world how I outran you to the empty tomb. <laughs> I just, I mean, I respect it. Well played, John. No, but remember, none of these gospels are meant to be exhaustive accounts. Right? John himself tells us at the end of this account, that if someone were to write about everything that Jesus did, every library in the world wouldn't be able to hold all the books. But then look what he says. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us that's why he included what he included. That's why he left out what he left out. Right? So John leaves out, apparently, the Peter walking on water part because that's peripheral to the point he's making in John 6. He's showing us something about Jesus. He wants to make sure we don't miss that. The Son of God is the focus here, and John wants all eyes on him. Uh, so finally, the rescue. The rescue from the chaos, verses 20 and 21. Take a peek back at that again. Jesus said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Do you notice, what does Jesus say to them to put them at ease? He identifies himself. so important that we don't overlook that. That is in a nutshell, right there, why we are preaching this series this fall, because our biggest need in all the problems we may be facing isn't three tips for a better marriage or five methods for coping with anxiety 
or even two actions to take when stuck at sea. Those are all fine. Sometimes they can provide limited help. But what we need most of all in our chaos is Jesus. To see him. And to see him for who he really is. As he identifies himself. And Jesus knows that's what we need most. And that's why, it's for their benefit, that the first thing he does is to unashamedly shine the spotlight on himself. Uh, but seminarians who are here uh, may be reading along in your Greek New Testaments right now. Take a peek at verse 20 in Greek. In Greek, what's the first thing Jesus says here? Take a peek at it. Make a note when you go home. What you'll see is that where it says, it is I in our English Bibles, uh, the way you would uh, the way you'd normally read that, if it wasn't in context here, more than the way you'd normally think to translate that in Greek is I am. Ego eimi, I am. Right? It could be translated, it is I, that's valid, I am. But in a gospel account that includes seven I am statements, ego eimi, the bread of life, ego eimi, the light of the world, ego eimi, the true vine, etc. Jesus showing up and just saying, ego eimi, it is I, I am, with no predicate, that's big, it's notable. Right? Especially the second or third time you read through John's gospel, at that point, you're saying, wait, this guy, Jesus, he controls the chaos. He brings the kingdom. He's the word become flesh, the son of God. Wait, so when, when he says, I am, and then just leaves it there, what if, what if he means, I am? Right? Because as at least John's Jewish readers knew, I am is the name by which God had revealed himself to Moses 2,000 years before this. Moses was like, hey, my, my people, God, aren't going to believe that I spoke with you. I don't even know what to call you. Who are you, God? And God's like, tell them I am sent you. Remember that story? Then 2,000 years after that, a man comes walking on water and calls out, I am. Don't be afraid. See the implication? The reason not to be afraid isn't just because now there's an especially calming and therapeutic human on the scene. It's because God is here with us. I am has become one of us, and now he's here in the midst of our chaos. Viewed in that light, some interpreters have argued that Jesus' sign in this story, the walking on the water, is actually less significant than these subsequent words that explain the sign, the I am that he calls out. The sign itself could be misunderstood. How many of these signs have already been misunderstood by the disciples in the crowd so far in John's gospel? But his words help us to understand the significance of the sign. Which is why pretty quickly the early church said, wait a minute. Now Psalm 107 makes sense. Here's Psalm 107. Just an excerpt from it, verses 24 to 30. It says, uh, this is a thousand years before Jesus, right? People of Israel have been singing this. It's in their hymn book, right? They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. The understanding of this passage, this psalm, had always been, see, no human can tame the sea. It's chaos. 
Only the Lord, I am, can manage that chaos. Only him. Oh, but here comes a human walking on the water, calming the sea, bringing them to safe harbor. Who could this be besides the embodiment of I am? And in that case, he's not just a power equal to the sea's power. He's not just a power that overpowers the sea's power. He's, if he's I am, then he actually is the source of the sea's power. Such that the sea answers to Jesus and depends on Jesus moment by moment for every ounce of its terrible strength. So when he tells it to hush, of course it obeys. So John, John's like, hey, I'm trying to show you from a bunch of different angles. Do you see it yet? Do you see who Jesus is? Because so many still miss it. Did you know, and this is so sad, 43% of, you can't see that, it's annoying, but 43% of American evangelical Christians today believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. That's, that's American evangelical churches, uh, Christians in churches like this one. That's like a month old. 43% say, oh yeah, great teacher, not God though. It's tragic. And to be clear, here's why that's such a huge miss. If Jesus isn't God, we're stuck in our sins. If he's merely a perfect human, say, all he can do then is set an example for us and point us in the right direction. But none of us have followed him and walked that path perfectly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And the wages of our sin is death, Romans 6. We're doomed. You'd say, but he didn't just set an example. He also died for us. And yes, that's the answer. But think about it. If he's just a human, merely a human, how can the death of one human, even a perfect one, pay the price for all of us millions and millions of sinners? It can't. At most, if he was somehow born sinless and then never once chose sin in his life, he could perhaps suffer and die in the place of one other human. One paying for one. One paying the price for another. Life for life. So that that individual could escape the wrath of God that he or she deserved. Maybe. If a perfect human dies in their place. But in order for the one to stand in the place of the many and the sacrifice to be sufficient, that one has to be more valuable than all the many put together. And that's one reason our Savior had to be divine. It had to be God. A mere human would not do. And in a hundred different ways, John's gospel is telling us good news. Jesus is God. He is the I am in the flesh. He's the God Psalm 107 told us about a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up. And in fulfillment of Psalm 107 verse 30, Jesus guides them to safe harbor. It's almost like we get two miracles for the price of one in this story. Right? You notice that? At once, the boat was at the shore where they were heading. It's like they teleported. They respawned, as our gamers might say. All it took was Jesus getting into their boat, and they escaped the storm and arrived safely immediately. No mere good teacher can instantly transport 12 of his friends out of a storm to shore. This has to be a God-man, a divine human. And that's why, from the early days of the church, they saw... Psalm 107 here. So our big idea today is this. Though we may be frightened when Jesus shows up amidst our chaos, let's welcome him aboard to bring us to safety. 
when you're dealing with a storm and now you're face to face with God, that's frightening. Out of the raptor pack and into the T-Rex lair, right? But this awesome and terrifying God is walking toward us because he's eager to wield his great power on our behalf for us. To do us good, not to do us harm. And so, though we may be frightened when he shows up amidst our chaos, let's welcome him aboard to bring us to safety. Make no mistake, life with Jesus isn't a guarantee of safety. In fact, it's the opposite. He literally says, hey, if you follow me, you will have trouble in this world. He told his disciples. He's not coming on board to be our advisor or our counselor to make suggestions or give advice. He's coming on board to captain the ship, to be our Lord and master. And yeah, that's scary in some ways, to surrender that control to him, not knowing where he's going to take us or what danger he's going to lead us through. But here's the thing. As many of us have experienced, at least temporarily, life without him is scary too. Isn't it? Ask the people who have attained everything that's supposed to bring happiness in this world, yet they can't get through the nights without sleeping pills, and they can't get through the days without antidepressants because they're haunted by the fact that they've attained it all, and it still feels meaningless. On some level, for each of us, it comes down to the question of which kind of scary do we want? There's some storms you can avoid if you don't associate with Jesus, right? So opting not to follow him is safer in some ways, at least in the short term. Yet for me, for many of us here, after surveying the options, we've chosen the type of scary in which we get to navigate the short-term danger with the accompaniment of one who is terribly powerful, yes, but who loves us dearly. I hope you've caught a glimpse of him today. If you haven't, uh, I want to take one more shot at it before we close uh, by answering one big picture question that was left unanswered. Here's what it is. It's a question about fit, right? So the passage, remember, immediately preceding this one, Jesus feeds 5,000 from five loaves of bread and two fish. The passage immediately after this one, if you peek ahead, Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Bread, bread. It's a bread chapter, right? Sandwiched in the middle unintended, we have this story. No bread, walking on water. Here's my question. Why here? Why interrupt the flow, John? What does this story, walking on water, have to do with bread? As it turns out, this story has everything to do with bread. Here's what I mean. Remember what Dr. Lau showed us last week? Feeding the 5,000 is like a new manna. Uh, the new iteration of the heavenly bread that God brought to his people through Moses, their prophet. And then Moses had said, hey, guess what? One day a prophet like me will come to you. Listen to him when he comes. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, his Jewish audience is like, it's him. This is the new Moses. The one Moses told us about. Let's make him king. But if Jesus is the new Moses, the one Moses foretold, what's his Red Sea crossing? Here it is, right? Right in the middle. It's like as if to show us we're on the right track and seeing Jesus as the one Moses foretold. We get Jesus' Red Sea crossing, except unlike Moses, unlike Joshua, unlike Elijah, unlike Elisha, all of whom split the waters and walked through on dry ground, Jesus doesn't even need to split it. He just walks on the water himself. Jesus is greater than Moses. Even greater 
than all of Israel's prophets. He is I am. And one day, not long after this passage in John 6, in his greatest act of love and power, he would step into our chaos in an alternate way on the cross. But this time, instead of rising above it, he's going to allow himself to be overtaken by it, subjecting himself to the worst of human abuse and torture, laying his life down to be killed by wicked men, even though at any moment he could have said enough, snapped his fingers and been done with it, whisked down from the cross by angels. He didn't, because he had chosen that cross, that chaos. He had chosen to go there, in your place and in my place, to take the punishment for sin that we deserved, experiencing the Father's hellish wrath poured out on him so that we'd never have to experience that hell for ourselves. So is Jesus' power frightening? Sure, it ought to make us tremble, but... When we see him on that cross, we realize, oh, I want him in my boat during this storm. Because he loves me. And he will bring me to safe harbor. Even if it requires the greatest cost to himself, he will. If you haven't yet welcomed him into your boat to be the captain, to be the Lord, why not today? Come see me after. Let's talk about how to acknowledge his rightful rule over your life. You have welcomed him in. Do you trust that he still intends to bring you to safe harbor? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can look to you in our chaos with confidence that. You aren't just empathetic toward us, but powerless to help. You aren't just powerful, but unwilling to help. You are big, and you love us both. And that makes us glad. Thank you for the promise that you will bring us to safe harbor. Maybe not in our timing, but in yours. And that ultimately, you rescue us from our ultimate chaos of sin and death. Through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Pray for the person this morning who hasn't yet yielded, who hasn't yet surrendered, who hasn't yet received that gift. I pray that you would just move in their hearts in such a way that you draw them irresistibly to yourself and that they would experience the profound joy there is in life that's in you. Not a safe life, but one that is accompanied by you in the midst of the storm until you bring us in. Pray as a congregation that we would experience that joy together and fan it into flame in each other. In Jesus' name.